Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians once again. So we come back to this great chapter talking uh, about really so much about the, the end times and about the Antichrist. As we come, I'm, I was thinking this week how everyone wants authenticity. At least they say they want authenticity. They want transparency. They don't want that which is phony and that which is fake. Everyone is looking these days for what's real, what they want real ingredients. They want, uh, they want to know where their food comes from. They want to have everything traced out, right? Everyone wants what is authentic. Uh, they, they're, they're so intent on getting that which is authentic, they'll go to almost any measure, you know. They have these, they have these uh, t-shirts that, that um, are, they, they look like, like 100 years old, right? They, they're, they're kind of designed with these old logos and this, this uh, worn out wash because everyone wants to have this look of being sort of raw and real. We used to have those shirts because we actually wore them for a decade, but now people go buy them so that they can have the appearance of looking like someone who doesn't really care about their clothing, but they care a lot, right? They go to great lengths to find just the right kind of pants and just the right kind of clothing with all the holes and all the stuff in it so they can have this certain appearance like they don't really care. Well, I was thinking about this week as we're talking about this man that Paul's describing as the man of lawlessness who is the ultimate fraud. He's the ultimate phony one. The ultimate one who lacks authenticity, but he goes to such great lengths in persuading people that he is the genuine deal, that he is, he is the one that they need to follow. We call him, even though Paul doesn't refer to him here, we call him the Antichrist because that's the way that John refers to him. Paul never calls him that, but John uses that phrase and, or uses that name, and so we pick it up to refer to him, even though... Paul uses uh, terms like the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, the lawless one. We know who he's talking about. He's talking about this fake Christ, this anti-Christ, this counterfeit Christ. He's the one who presents himself, we read in verse 5, he presents himself as an object of worship. He opposes God and everything that is called God, and then he wants to replace God. And so he, he has this moment where he goes into the temple in Jerusalem, and he sets himself up in the temple so that people worship him instead of worshiping Christ. In every way, he mimics Christ. He has his own day, his own parousia. Down in verse 9, we, Paul calls it a parousia. It's the word that we use to refer to the coming of Christ. But here he has his coming. He has a revelation, Paul talks about. Just like Christ will be revealed from heaven, so he's going to be revealed. He even has his own message, which Paul calls the lie that he wants people to believe. A message as sure as Christ has a message. He, even in verse 9, he has signs and wonders, just like Christ has signs and wonders. In Revelation, we even see he has a resurrection, like Christ had a resurrection. In so many ways, he is the phony, he is the counterfeit Christ. He's the Antichrist. He presents himself as God, as the object of worship, but he is a fake. He's a phony And yet so many people are so eager to believe in him. They're so eager to follow him. Even though he's nothing really of what he says 
that he is. Now, Paul explains some of this today, and he does it in the, in the course of a response to these Thessalonians. Because if you remember, we've been talking about this a number of weeks, you remember this whole discussion arises out of a phony letter, a fake letter. He talks about it in verses 1 and 2. It's the first point that we laid out in trying to understand this passage and and the way Paul's explaining all these things, when he speaks in verses 1 and 2 about the distress of the Thessalonians that comes because of this false letter claiming that the day of the Lord had already arrived and that the gathering together of the saints had already come. And he, he wants to correct all of that, so he does it with a series of explanations, beginning in verses 3 and 4 with a description of the Antichrist, this really becomes the chief evidence that he has to present to them that they're not in the day of the Lord and that the gathering together of, uh, to Christ has not yet happened. He does all this by pointing to this man of lawlessness and the rebellion that accompanies him or the apostasy that, that coincides with his coming. And he's basically saying to them, the day of the Lord cannot have arrived because this guy hasn't appeared on the scene. And the rebellion or the apostasy that, that comes with him hasn't come as well. And he goes on to give them a detailed description reminding them, as he says in verse 5, do you not remember when I was still with you, I told these things, told you these things, reminding them of what he had told them so that they could look around and, and, and it would become obvious. This guy is so distinctive in his wickedness and his in his arrogance and in his power, he's so distinctive, it should become obvious to them that he's not anywhere near. Now, we've mentioned a number of times, John says a number of antichrists have already gone out. There have been a number of prototypes, a number of people who have a kind of of, of character of this guy, but no one to the level and the prominence and the destructive influence of this man. He is unique. He will appear on the scene. Once the Lord comes and gathers us to himself, he will appear on the scene. He will become prominent throughout the world. He will raise up to a status unlike any other, making himself a leader of the entire world, making treaties with every nation until midway through a a seven-year tribulation period. He does exactly what Paul speaks of here what Jesus speaks of, what John speaks of. He goes into the temple in Jerusalem and he, he desecrates the temple. He establishes himself as the abomination of desolation. Although obviously he doesn't call himself that, but he desecrates the temple. And his, his destructive influence is, is unleashed in unparalleled forms. Now, all of this sort of discussion, this reminder from Paul, leads him to explain our our third point that we have looked at in detail last week, which is the delay, why why this isn't happening yet. Paul says in verse 6, you know what is restraining him. You know it. He, He had told them very clearly when he was with them. He doesn't tell us plainly. In this passage, we have to kind of piece it together from other scriptures, and we did that last week, demonstrating why this is 
This is referring to the Holy Spirit. He is that which restrains. He restrains the Antichrist until the day when God has determined for him to be revealed. And the day he is revealed, the time when he is revealed, as Paul is explaining, is when Christ returns. But even now, the spirit of lawlessness that will dominate the Antichrist is already at work. It's already happening around us. There already are these Antichrists who are already going out. It's not as if, it's not as if Satan and all of his activity and all of those who, who he inspires or even fills to do his, his labors, it's not as if they're totally quiet right now. They're at work, but they're being restrained. All of them are being restrained. They're not doing all of the destructive evil that they would like to do or, or have the capacity to do because of the Holy Spirit. But there's coming a day, just like in the day of Noah, when God says about the, the earth, it was wicked. You know, every man was doing uh, all this wickedness to, the, to the, the full extent of his imagination. And God decides, you know, I'm not going, my spirit, he says in Genesis 6, is not going to battle, wrestle, contend with men any longer. And he pulls off the restraints. And the earth is plunged into chaos. Well, Paul's saying this similar kind of thing is going to happen. The Antichrist is going to be revealed when God decides to pull back the restraining force. To remove the restraining force who is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God. He'll set it aside, and at that point, the Antichrist will be unleashed. But that won't be the end, because then in verse 8, Paul talks about his destruction. In fact, he can hardly talk about the guy or about his career without reminding us of this little fact, that he will be utterly destroyed. He doesn't even want to, he wants to talk about his power, he wants to remind them of just how powerful this guy is, but he doesn't want to do it without also reminding us very quickly that, he, that no matter how powerful he is, and by the way, no matter how powerful the destructive forces of wickedness are even now, the mystery of lawlessness that's, that's at work, even now, no matter how strong and how powerful it is, it is nothing compared to God's power, which is Paul's point here. That this guy whether he's in the future, the man of lawlessness, or right now, the mystery of lawlessness, it doesn't matter. There's a sovereign power of Christ that is going to destroy it all. And so he tells them this. He tells them this. In verse 8, Then the lawlessness will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing By the appearance of his coming. He will obliterate him. Annihilate him. Bring him to nothing. The one who who goes in. Who opposes in verses 3 and 4. Every form of religion. Who sets himself up in the temple. As the object of worship. And convinces the entire world. To follow him in that way. He literally is idolized in every corner of the globe by virtually every person in the world. He will be truly seen as the hero. He will be, he will be adored with the greatest admiration of all time. And while he even works out his destructive and vile agenda, killing and destroying and 
and doing his own annihilating work, while all that is going on, when he is at the peak of his power and seeming most triumphant, Paul says the Lord Jesus will appear and will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing, bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Very interesting language. He will slaughter him, he will destroy him, he will kill him, he will eradicate him, and he will do it by the breath of his mouth. And a couple ways that people understand that. Some people think that he's just literally talking about like, like a, a, a breath. Literally, that he would just blow him away. Other people explain it as a command. That this is a command of the Lord and by his authority he is condemned. We certainly know the commandment of the Lord is a powerful thing. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And so everything we see around us, every magnificent hill and beautiful lake and ocean and everything in the skies that are, that are uh, in their orbits around all the various celestial bodies, all that stuff was, was created by the, the breath of God or by the word of God. So we know that the word of God is a powerful thing. And if this is what he's talking about here, this expression implies, just like it does with creation, that God eradicates this guy with such ease, with so much ease, No difficulty at all. He doesn't have to lift a finger. There is no drawn out conflict, no fierce battle. He just appears and he speaks. And this man who held sway over the entire world is is gone. According to the Old Testament, the breath of God is a fierce weapon. Isaiah 30 describes the Lord coming and rising from afar. It says the lips or his lips are full of fury. And his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction, to place on the jaws of the people a bridle that leads astray. This is the word of the Lord. The power of just His voice. Or most memorably in Isaiah chapter 11, which speaks about a a root that comes up from the stump of Jesse or a branch that comes out from him speaking about the Messiah. And it says, with righteousness he will judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay all the wicked. Revelation also pictures Christ in that same kind of way. So here he is, the Antichrist at the height of his power the preeminence of, of everything he was seeking, uh, setting out to achieve when he seems most invincible, he will meet his sudden end and it will all happen at the appearing of the Lord's coming. You just have this, it's not just his coming, but it's the first appearance of it. The first frame, if you will, of the entire sequence of what happens. He just... Epiphania is the word. He just appears and he speaks and everything falls in line and falls in order. This is different from verse 1 when Paul talked about our gathering, our epasunagoges, 
That's what, the, that's what the Thessalonians were all worried about. They were worried about this gathering. But Paul's not talking about the gathering here. He's talking about the defeat of the evil one. He's talking about the defeat of the Antichrist. I mean, once the Antichrist is, is defeated, there's no more concern, right? You're not worried anymore if he's gone. And what he's saying is that the moment that Christ appears, the very, the very first uh, blink of his appearing, he eradicates this lawless one. This is the, this is the power of Christ. This is the sovereignty of Christ. And Paul wants us to understand that no matter whatever happens on the face of the earth, none of it will ever surpass the power of the Lord to subdue it. To do away with it. Revelation 19 tells us that after he has worked out all of his wickedness through this tribulation period, that he will gather all of his armies against the Lord and against his people. And it says that there were those who were gathered together against the Lord. They were, Revelation 19 says, were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of the Lord. And the beast, it says, or the Antichrist at that point, is summarily thrown into the lake of fire and just suddenly it's just all over. It's all over. This is Paul's picture of how easily, how swiftly, how sovereignly the Lord will overcome this wicked man. He sovereignly allows him to rise up. He sovereignly allows him to be unrestrained. He has the power to restrain him. And he's restraining him even now to some extent. But then he decides to remove those restraints in his sovereignty. But none of that stuff ever indicates that the Lord's not in control. People think that all the time. They see these terrible things happen and they immediately, their reflex action is just to say, well, I mean, God's not, God's, God, where's God? God's not in control. No, the Lord uses these things. Uses even a wicked man like this. To do his bidding and to bring about his, his consequences. Which really kind of leads to Paul's next explanation in verses 9 and 10. Why they don't see this, uh, all this happening in, in, in the day of the Lord. Paul's explaining, uh, if you will, in very brief and rapid fashion. How all of this is going to work itself out. And so he moves from the destruction of this evil one. To the deception of the Antichrist in verses 9 and 10. He's telling them that he's going to be defeated, but he wants to remind them, first of all, of, uh, after, I should say, after he's reminding them he's being defeated, he wants to remind them of his career. And so he says in verse 9, the coming of the lawlessness, lawless one, is by the activity of Satan. With all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. I mean, this guy comes with superhuman power. He will be superhuman, satanically endowed power. His, his activity, he says, is by the power of Satan. We have these people who are fascinated these days by supernatural powers. You have these people who are fascinated by witches and 
warlocks and all this imaginary stuff. Well, this guy is going to come and he's going to have real power, satanic power behind him. He's going to be doing things that, that you can only see on a movie screen right now. He'll perform, Paul says, signs and wonders. In fact, he, he describes them here, first of all, as signs, dunamis, or excuse me, power, dunamis, or, or mighty works, which talks about the, the inherent power of these things. And then he calls them signs, which, which means that, that, that they're pointing to something. They're, they're trying to validate this guy. They're trying to stir up uh, some credibility for this guy. And then he calls them wonders, which speaks to the response of the people, the astonishment of the people who see it. All of this, uh, first of all, the power, they're mighty, the purpose, they, they, give, they give credibility to the guy. And then their effect, they leave people with a sense of awe and wonder. This guy is going to be looked at like a hero, like a supernatural hero. By the way, if you're just a little bit familiar with the book of Acts, you recognize these words, signs and wonders and miracles, because they're the same three words that Paul used in Acts 2.22 to describe Christ. Jesus Christ came with power and signs and wonders, the same mighty works, the same signs to validate Him The same kind of amazement left in the hearts and minds of people who saw him. But this guy, he's a counterfeit. He's a fake. He's mimicking Christ. Not because his his miracles are not real. That's not the point. He has the power of Satan behind him. The miracles themselves are real. What makes him a fake is where he is leading people. He uses all of these things to lead them down a pathway of deception. To lead them down a pathway not to the truth but to falsehood. Jesus, we know, is the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, he, he came and he performed his miracles. He did his works in order to lead people to life. This guy does his works in order to lead them to deception and to death. That's what Paul means whenever he says he comes with false signs and wonders. Not that they're not real signs, but these, not not that they're not real miracles. He's not talking about their nature, he's talking about their effect. Satan endows them with power. He works out his wickedness. People gather to follow him. They're amazed at him. But he leads them down a pathway of deception. That's what Paul says there in verse 10. That they are with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. His working is with all Wicked deception. That's the key difference between this counterfeit Christ and the real Christ. It's where the miracles lead you. 
You may remember Deuteronomy 13, Moses warned the people of Israel, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer. In other words, whether or not his miracle or his prophecy comes to pass is not the primary issue. The primary issue is, where is he leading you? Where is he leading you? Is he leading you down a pathway of the true gospel? Is he leading you down a pathway toward Christ's likeness? Or is he leading you down a pathway of rebellion and selfishness and and materialism and deception. Moses acknowledged there might be a prophet, there might be a dreamer who comes along and performs a powerful sign. That might actually happen. Satan does perform counterfeit miracles. But even if there's real power, it still might be a false miracle. You can't just assume because you see something powerful, you see something miraculous, that it is absolutely of the Lord. That's the way most people evaluate things, though. They evaluate things on the surface level. They evaluate it maybe only at the emotional level. They only talk about how something made them feel, how they reacted to something, whether or not it made them feel moved or left them in a sense of amazement or a sense of awe. And that is the total level of their evaluation. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is saying, he's saying that the, the, the true uh, the miracles, I should say, of this, uh, of this uh, Antichrist, they lead in a pathway of deception unlike the true Christ. Unlike the true Christ. As I said earlier, Revelation 13 even speaks about him having a mortal wound. A mortal wound, a, a, a wound that kills him. And then it's healed. And so he dies and he rises from the dead and the whole earth marvels. John says in Revelation 13. So this guy works all these false signs and wonders and miracles... His activity is by the power of Satan with all wicked deception so that he affects people to believe a lie. He affects them to believe a lie. Everything you get about this guy is wickedly deceptive. And people follow. They believe his promises. They believe his vision for life and the world. They're convinced that he is the answer. They think that he has it all together. He appears to them to be genuine. He appears to them to be authentic. He seems to have credibility. He works mighty signs and wonders. He does all of those things. They think he's going to solve all of their problems. They think that he is finally, after all these years, he's the answer. Forget all the antiquated stuff that comes out of the Bible, forget all the antiquated stuff that comes out of any other religion for that matter. He sets himself up against every religion and he presents himself as that which is to be idolized. 
There will be people, no doubt, who write articles about this guy explaining why he's the greatest thing ever. There will be people who are writing books about him. They'll want to make movies about his life. They'll want to write songs about him, no doubt. They will celebrate him in every way. And yet, the entire thing is a lie. The entire thing. I mean, this is the definition of a herd mentality. We see it all around us. We see even now this kind of wickedness happening. We see already what Paul calls the mystery of lawlessness at work. What's going to be epitomized in this guy is already among us. You see it, people sort of jump on all the time, these fads and these waves, and they think that it's going to be the solution. It is the newest thing and it's the best thing, and they get all jazzed up about it. It's got all the answers. Forget about all the old ways. Forget about all the, all the traditional ways. This is it, and it's all a deception. Well, this guy's going to work it out in its, in its perfected form. And all that really leads to Paul's next explanation of these events, if you will. In verses 11 and 12, where he talks about the delusion among those who follow. The delusion among those who follow. He's deceptive, no doubt, but they're deluded. The people who follow him are deluded. And he describes them in the second half of verse 10 as those who refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they believe what is false. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Of course, everything he's describing here is talking about unbelievers because this is the time of judgment against unbelievers. All this focused on what's going to happen in the day of the Lord. And he says, Paul says that there are going to be these people who, who themselves are perishing. Even though he's talking about something that hasn't happened. I mean, the entire focus of this passage is to convince the Thessalonians that none of these things have happened yet. Even though he's talking about something that hasn't happened, he uses the present tense here. To emphasize that their judgment is not something that's just in the future. It is something that's in the present. They are perishing. They are being condemned. They're being judged. It doesn't wait for the fires of hell. It begins in this life, in this world, by the choices that they're making. They are perishing. And he gives a reason why. They're perishing because they refused to love the truth. They had some opportunity, some point in time, when they were exposed to the truth and they refused it. So to be saved. They didn't accept the truth. This is the reason why they're being condemned. But listen to this. It's also the means. It's the reason why they're being condemned, but it's also the means by which they are perishing. Because they refused 
the love of the truth. It's a willful, deliberate, intentional rejection of the truth. In other words, these people rejected the truth not because they have intellectual obstacles to it. They rejected the truth not because they had difficulty in understanding it, not because there were rational difficulties or, or whatever. They rejected the truth for volitional reasons. They rejected the truth, he says, because they did not love it. They didn't love it. In other words, the issue was not in their head, it was in their heart. That's why they didn't love the truth. See, a Christian is someone who loves the truth. They respond to the truth. Jesus says they're his sheep and they hear his voice. They recognize his voice and respond to it. But these people, they don't love the truth. Of course, Jesus Christ being the greatest expression of that truth. Paul's, but when Paul says they don't love the truth, he's not talking about truth in general. He's not saying that they don't like mathematical truth or scientific truth or, or those kinds of things. He's saying specifically that they don't love the truth of God. Manifest in the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. And everything that he commands and, and says. And so you have these people who refuse the truth and so they are... They're cast into their own devices. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You can try to teach them. You can try to persuade them. You can talk to them, and they will just roll their eyes, turn around, walk away, whatever it is. They will despise instruction. John 8, 45, Jesus speaking to the unbelieving Pharisees, he says, I tell you the truth, or excuse me, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. And which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is because you're not of God. I mean, it's just the deciding point. It's the deciding factor. How you respond. When someone comes to you and says, this is the word of the Lord, how do you respond? Do you love it? Do you respond to it with a sense of affection? Jesus says, look, if I had not shared with you the truth, you would have accepted me. Because I spoke to you the truth, you hate me. If I had played your game, if I had not exposed you by telling you what was true, then you would have accepted me. But because I spoke the truth to you, you don't. Because you don't love the truth. Jesus explained it in John 3. He says, this is the judgment that light came into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's why people avoid the truth. That's why they don't want the truth. They don't want you talking to them about the truth. They don't love the truth. They will, from time to time, tolerate it. But it's not the thing that they gravitate to. And so they manufacture all kinds of excuses. They, they come up with all kinds of reasons why They don't want to hear it. They want to avoid it. 
They nitpick, they criticize, they complain, they deny. But the reality is they are being exposed and they don't like it. You know what the heart of a true believer is? The heart of a true believer is he loves the truth. A believer loves the truth and they don't worry if it exposes them. It may completely undress them. It may completely make them feel exposed and, and, and naked in every sense of the word like that that, that, that. that spiritually they have no place to hide. Spiritually they have no place to go. All they can do is confess what the word of God says is true. And yet they love it. They love it. They will come and they will hear it. They will read it. They will weep over their own deficiencies and yet they still love it. They love the truth. We as Christianity are a truth-driven movement. We are defined by truth. And we are saved by truth. We're rescued by it. Truth stirs emotion. Truth stirs emotion. You develop a love for the truth. And then when you hear the truth, it stirs you. It moves you. Everyone's trying to manufacture emotion. In churches and in every other way, they're trying to manufacture these environments that move people by anything but the truth. I'm not against, listen, I'm not against good quality aesthetics and and comfortable seats and all those other things that that make people ready to engage in, in whatever the environment is. But I understand that at the heart and at the core of what moves people is truth. But for some people, they hate it. They reject it. They refuse the love of the truth so as to be saved. And that's their problem. And they're condemned for it. But at the same time, they suffer the consequences of it. You see in verse 11, therefore, because they refuse to love the truth, what happens? Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they believe what is false. This is an explanation of God's judgment. And what he's saying is that because of the rejection, the refusal to love the truth, God sends them this delusion. And what is the result of the delusion that God sends? They believe what is false. So because they refuse the love of the truth, God causes them to believe what is false. It's an act of judgment. It's part of their condemnation. People struggle with this. They, they can't reconcile in their minds When it comes to God, they can't believe that He would actually cause people to be deluded. To believe what is false. Or literally, as Paul says, to believe the lie. The lie here being the lie that the Antichrist is trying to to spread. But they are plunged, because of God's 
deluding influence, they are plunged headlong more and more into the lie to their own destruction. This is what we sometimes call judicial hardening or judicial blinding, and Scripture speaks about it again and again and again. I mean, we all remember Pharaoh, right? who refused to listen to the Lord, and we, we read in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then suddenly in Exodus 9, you read, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So that there was no turning around at that point. There was no turning back. He rejected God, and then God sealed him on the path from which he could no longer return. And he was plunged into greater and greater destruction. He actually reached the point where he not only destroyed himself, but so many people who followed him into the Red Sea because of the hardness of his heart. Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord calls Isaiah, and Isaiah responds, Here am I, send me. And the Lord says to him in Isaiah 6, 8, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. He's not, he's not saying to, to, to Isaiah, look, I want you to go out there and search and see if you can recognize blindness on the part of people. He's not saying I want you to find it. He says I want you to make it. I want you to produce it. I want you to render them this way. And the way you're going to do it isn't by shielding the message. It isn't by by couching it in some sort of obtuse terms. You're going to do it by preaching with clarity the truth of God. You're going to confront them in their rebellion. You're going to condemn them in their rebellion. And because of their rebellion, you're going to make them less and less sensitive to the truth. Because it's precisely the rejection of God's word, the the, the rejection of God's truth, which God uses to increase the hardness of rebellion. To increase the hardness of someone's heart and thus to increase their culpability. Now you might think to yourself, can, can a heart that already doesn't accept God's truth, become more hardened to it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It can become hardened to His truth. It can become hardened to all kinds of truth. It happens when someone is confronted with a clear proclamation of the truth and their conscience, uh, their rebellious heart hardens itself so that that truth doesn't penetrate, that truth doesn't enter into their heart. They put up a, a thicker and thicker wall, if you will. And then they, they mix in all of their own thoughts, all of their own erroneous ideas to, to battle against that. And, they're, and they rationalize again and again against God's truth until their conscience 
has all kinds of avenues and ways of escape. Every time they're confronted with the truth of God, they have some rationalization around it, some reason why they reject it, and they hit that escape hatch, and they hit that route, and they hit that avenue over and over and over again until you can't pin them down anymore with the Word of God. They're so hardened to the Word of God. Every time you you speak the Word of God to them, it just has no effect on them. And as you proclaim the word with greater and greater clarity, the rebellious heart trains themselves more and more to ignore their conscience until their conscience is hardened. It's not an overnight process. That's why people are deceived by it all the time. They can be in church every week and this be happening. But it comes to an end when they are numb to the truth. Numb. And you meet these people and their attitude. Their attitude is, you know, I've heard it all before. I heard all that. Yeah, someone said that to me. One, My parents told me that. My wife told me that. My husband told me that. And they're hardened. Paul says this is what happens. Just like it happened in the days of Isaiah, just like it happened in the days of Pharaoh. God sends them a strong delusion so that they begin to believe what is false. They believe the lie. And they're all condemned. And they're condemned, why? Because they didn't love the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. See, God, God didn't initiate this thing. He's just... Hardening them in the pathway they've already taken. He's, he's performing an act of judgment against them. Even now. And as they reject the truth, they, they suffer the consequences of their choices over and over and over again. That's why Paul says, not that they will perish, but that they are perishing. Their life is withering. Their life is falling apart because they have hardened their heart against the truth of God. I hope you're not at that place. I hope if you're here this morning, I hope that you're not among those who are perishing because you have refused God's truth. Because you're now hardening your heart. I hope you're not there because you might find that God will harden it even more. That you might think you can keep it under control right now, that you can kind of pick and choose and you can be good when you need to be good and you can be whatever you want to be whenever you want to be it. You might think that you're in control right now, but you might reach a point where God hardens you. And whatever little bit of chaos has come into your life right now because you have ignored and refused the truth of God is nothing compared to what is in store. You want to talk about condemnation? You want to talk about perishing even while you're still alive? God does it. You reject the truth so many times, you get to the place where you can't even distinguish truth from error any longer and you are defenseless and you are exposed and you are helpless against the lies of the enemy and the lies of Satan and he devours you. Those at the end are like this. They're perishing. God's judgment 
is taking place. That's why it's called the day of the Lord. It's not that they have been thrown in the lake of fire right at that moment, but they are perishing nonetheless because they are following the pathway of this deceptive leader. They are being plunged further and further into his lie. They are rejecting truth outright. They can no longer distinguish good from bad at all. They're making choices day in and day out that are, that are destroying their lives and destroying their happiness and destroying their soul. They're doing it and yet God has sent them a deluding influence so they do it all the more. I hope you're not there. I hope you're not there. I hope you aren't the person who shows up at a place like this and, and politely sits and listens to the preacher but you're thinking in your heart, I don't believe in that stuff. I don't believe in that kind of God. I don't believe in that kind of a devil. I don't believe in that kind of a, a truth. I don't believe in that kind of a gospel. I don't believe in all that stuff. Listen, if you don't love the truth of God, if you refuse to love the truth of God, you have no one to blame but yourself. When you find yourself perishing, condemned under his judgment hand, That's not our prayer, certainly. Our prayer is that you'll be saved. This is the beauty, is that by the love of the truth, you're saved. That's what Paul says. People love the truth so as to be saved. And all you have to do is confess it. All you have to do is humble yourself and your pride. All you have to do is bow down before God and say, God, you are right and I am wrong. Everything you say is true. And my sin has led me astray. But I'm here today to confess to you that I'm a sinner and I'm condemned and I'm perishing and would you save me? That's all it takes. You confessing the Lord Jesus with your mouth, believing that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. It's our prayer for you this morning as we close out here in a word of prayer and a song. If you sense that the Lord is speaking to you, if you believe that the Lord is, is revealing to you the hardness of your heart right now and you want to repent, I encourage you to come see me in the visitor reception, see any of our elders. Give us opportunity. We would love to be able to share with you the truth of God that saves. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful, so grateful for your truth. It, it came into our darkness. It gave us light. It led us on a pathway of salvation and a pathway of peace. We were the foolish ones. We were the ones who were bucking against your truth and trying to go our own way and tasting the bitterness of our sin. And yet you saved us. You brought us out by your mercy. What a merciful God you are to not only give us the truth but to forgive us for all of our sin. Lord, we're grateful for that. We thank you for that. We pray that you would save others. That you would give us an opportunity to to declare the truth and you would save them. Thank you for sparing us from your wrath. Thank you for sparing us from condemnation and from perishing. Thank you for sparing us from the day of evil. That we might be gathered together to you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.